So happy Father's Day to everyone. Wait, wait, wait. Happy Father's Day to everyone. So what we like to do at City, we do it on Mother's Day. We enjoy doing it on Father's Day as well. We like to honor specific dads that are here. Now, the message that I'll be bringing will be geared towards men in general, but what we're going to do this morning is very quickly, we will honor three specific men um, who are fathers. And with that, what we like to do is discover, first of all, who has the most children, grandchildren, and great-great-grands. And so what we tend to do is we'll start with a specific number if you're here, and that number is the number you have or you exceed that if you would stand. So we're going to start with 10, with 10. So if you're a man and you're here, and you would be happy to say, maybe you don't claim them all, but the number's still the same, that if you would stand at this time, if you have 10 or more, go ahead and stand. Any men here, stand. All right, now. We're going to go through a, I'm going to kind of go up in numbers. As I hit your number, you will grab a seat. Does that make sense? All right, so 10, 11, 12. Chauncey, it's cheaper by the dozen, so go ahead and be seated. 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. All right, Ernest, how many? 23. All right, come on up here. Can you come on up and join me? All right, you can be seated. We'll have someone bring it to you. Would you rather do that or do you want to come up? Oh, is there someone else? All right, competition still rages. Stand up, whomever you are. I can't see up there at the top. So what number was I at? Well, he said 23. They said never mind. They, they caved at that number. Well, it saved us time anyway. So Peter, can you come on up here and take this to Ernest, by the way? This is a Lowe's gift card, and so that's for Ernest. I'm sure he's got a lot of things he needs to fix. So there you go, Ernest. The next will be the dad that's here that has the oldest child, the father with the oldest child. So we're going to start at the ripe old age of 40. So if you have a child that's 40 years or older, you're a father, stand at this time, please. Stand. And then check with her to find out the real age of your oldest child. That literally, didn't you, didn't you turn and say, yeah, I caught you. He's, how old is my oldest kid? So 40, I'm going to go up in increments of one. So 41, 42, 43, 44, 45, 46, 47. 48, 49, 50, 51, it's the best age, 51, 52, 53, 54, Sherwood, are you the last man standing or is there more? 54, is Sherwood the last one, 54, wave your hand, I can't, there's one more, so 54, 55, 56, 57, 58, what age? 60, wow, congratulations. Peter, I'm gonna just stay standing, my son will bring you this gift card. Sorry about that, Peter. 
You can throw it from halfway. I think he could catch. And the last one will be the father of the youngest child. Youngest child. So if you're a dad and you're here and you have a child that's two years old or younger, please stand. Two years old or younger. All the dads, stand. If you have a child two years old or younger. So now what we're going to do is we're going to have congregational prayer for these guys right now because they haven't slept in two years. But uh, so that's 24 months. So I'm going to go down as far as months go. And uh, so 24 months, 23, 22, 21, 20 months, 19 months, 18 months, 17, 16, 15, 14 months, 13 months, a year, 11, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5 months, four months, three months, two months, one month. All right, so we were stuck at two. Oh, you have a one month. Is there one one month left? Raise your hand. One month, come on down. Congratulations. He's sleepwalking right now. Congratulations. There's a Lowe's gift card, so you can fix something up for the little one. Let's give the dads a hand. So now what we're going to do is I'm going to bring a Father's Day message to all of the men. It's a message for men. And... What I want you to do kind of at the outset on this Father's Day is understand a couple of things about men. Now, this may be an overgeneralization, but we're going to move towards an episode, a unique episode that involves Jesus in the gospel. But before we get there, there's a couple of things to think about as men. One of them is those of us who are dads have an urge to provide Something about that. But almost for all men, there's an urge to protect and to defend. To protect and defend. I don't know how you were men, but I know last Sunday when I went in the back after the teaching that I brought about follow Jesus, I went into the back and I was getting ready to come out and say the final blessing and something popped on my phone and it was an AP alert. It was announcing the massacre in Orlando, Florida. And so what we did at the end of the service was we kind of had a quick ad hoc prayer. But what happened there is the initial alert that I received on my phone said that 50 people had died and over 50 were in the hospital. If you are like I am, as a man, it just feels like things have changed. Could have been 9-11, I don't know. But I'm going to be honest with all of the men that are here in this auditorium. Ladies, pray for us. You can listen well. But there's something about what happens when we've experienced this string of events that we've experienced in our country. We're going to conclude our service by having all the men, young and old, stand 
and we're going to pray. But before we get there, what I want us to do is kind of think about some of these recent events and what has it done in your soul or in your gut? What's it done? My confession is I've been stunned at some of the emotions that I've had. I want to be honest with you, there's been some anger. There's been some thoughts of retaliation. And in the midst of all that, I have experienced Christ coming to me in prayer and through the Bible story we're going to talk about, which I've studied for decades. And Christ confronted me in the midst of me being a man and being a protector and a defender. But before we get there, I want you to think about, men, where you grew up, your hometown. Think about your hometown. When you think about home, where does your mind go? Where does your heart go? Was your hometown conservative? Was it liberal? White collar? Blue collar? Was it kind of a military area? Was it sort of an outdoors area? Was it a metropolitan area? What would you consider to be home? And then, how would you describe it? How would you describe your hometown? I would describe mine. I grew up on a farm in Wisconsin, in Nina, Wisconsin. I would describe mine as a farming community. Every farmer had a name like Dauberkey or Ludkey. They were German Lutherans. Let me explain this. There wasn't a lot of emotion anywhere at any time. In the community where I was raised, hard work was honored. Sports were huge. And they were people of the dirt, people of the earth. They were farmers. Nothing was flashy. Everything was utilitarian. That's where I was raised, on a farm. My children, on the other hand, have been raised in Charlottesville. Being raised in Charlottesville is very different. That's why I'm wearing this shirt today with the UVA symbol on it, because my children bought me this shirt for Christmas this past year. The UVA symbol is there because it's the best university in the world. That's why. Hua. Go who's. But as a dad, my son went to UVA. I have a daughter that is enrolled there, will be going there. And so when I think about the city of Charlottesville, I would explain it as a southern college town where the best people on God's green earth live. I'm exceptionally biased. Where my children are growing up is pretty much antithetical to where I grew up. This is a white-collar community in many, many ways. The university is the economic engine, whereas where I grew up, farming and agriculture was the center. It's incredibly, incredibly different. The reason why I'm sharing this is because we're going to deal with an episode in the Gospels where Jesus goes to his hometown. He's been away. 
And Jesus has been away, and he's going to his hometown, and you know where he was from because you've heard this title before, Jesus of what? Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth. People called him that. Jesus from Nazareth. I would be Pete from Nina. One of my children might be their name from Charlottesville. But Jesus of Nazareth was a title that's given to him in the Gospels. To understand Jesus, you've got to understand Nazareth. What was it? When you look at Nazareth, here's what you need to know. Jesus was a Jew. And yet Matthew 5.14 tells us that Nazareth was in a, in a region that was called Galilee of the Gentiles. Where Jesus grew up was a place called Galilee, and it was called Galilee of the Gentiles. One of the disciples, when they were going to be introduced to Jesus, his friend was bringing him to meet Christ. The guy's name was Nathaniel in John chapter 1, and he said, we've met the Christ. He is Jesus of Nazareth. And here's what the guy said. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? What good can come from Nazareth? That tells you a little bit about Jesus' hometown. But Bible scholars and historians that study antiquity tell us that Nazareth was this little frontier Jewish enclave about 90 miles north of Jerusalem. Jesus grew up there. He was a Jew among Gentiles. Nazareth was positioned there by Jews. It was literally kind of like a frontier enclave of Jews who were hacking out a life among Gentiles and reclaiming some land for the Jewish people. They were known as highly nationalistic people. They were zealous for the nation of Israel, and that's why many of them lived there. So the Bible tells us that Jesus of Nazareth goes home. And in order to read that account, I would like for you to go with me quickly to Luke chapter 4, and we're going to begin reading in verse 14. So as we talk about follow Jesus and serve others, let's follow Jesus as he goes to his own hometown. Now there's a couple other things that might be helpful to know. As we're following Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, and he's going to his hometown, which is Nazareth, here's what else you need to know. Not only is Nazareth a Jewish enclave among a predominantly Gentile region, Gentiles, by the way, are a simple statement for non-Jews. Not only is there that going on, but every Jew that Jesus knew was dominated by the Roman Empire. So the time of Jesus... There was not only friction between Jews and Gentiles, oftentimes incredible hostility, but there was also the Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire was dominating and crushing the Jewish people. If you were looking for an oppressed group of people, look no farther than the people who lived in Nazareth. They were oppressed. And we know from Jesus' birth story that the Roman leader of that region had, de de had decided to tighten the screws 
into the Jewish people even more deeply, and he was squeezing them for every dime they had. And the reason why Jesus was born where he was born was because his father had to go back to his hometown to take a census so that the Roman governor of that area would know who was where, and he would have the authority and the data he needed to tighten the screws economically and to take more taxation from the Jews. So here's Nazareth, small Jewish town, surrounded by Gentiles and dominated, crushingly so, by the Roman Empire. And here's what the gospel tells us. Reading from Luke chapter 4, verse 14. And I want to tell you at the outset, as I've read this story and looked at it, God has confronted me as a man. Listen. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. I want you to notice the mood as we read through this and the mood and how it changes. Everyone's praising Jesus. He's teaching, and as we read on, we discover there's other great things. Verse number 16, it says, He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. What's happening? Jesus is returning to his own hometown. Other gospels tell us that they had heard of his miracles. He had become famous even though he hadn't been to Nazareth in years. You could put it this way. Jesus was their favorite son. He was the golden boy. He was the hometown hero. He was the hopeful one. He was the one that had left Nazareth, and now God was using him in a powerful, powerful way. And as a Jewish man, God was with him. And there's no doubt that the people of Nazareth were thrilled to see him come home because they're this little Jewish enclave and the favorite son, the hometown hero, is coming home and he enters the synagogue and as was done in that tradition, there would be a man that was chosen to read for the text for the day and the scroll of Isaiah was handed to Jesus and it says, unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. And here's what Jesus reads. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue was fastened on him. And he began by saying that to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That prophecy from the book of Isaiah has now been fulfilled right there. Verse 22, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. Jesus said to them, 
Surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. They had heard about his healings elsewhere. Verse 24. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, and when the sky was shut for three and a half years, there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them were cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Wow, welcome home, Jesus. Welcome home. The question has to be, how do we go from praise and attaboys and excitement that the golden boy is home to where now all of a sudden there's rage and there's hatred and there's venom and they take the golden boy, the hometown hero, and they take him to the edge of a cliff and they're going to throw him off and kill him, but by God's power he just walks through the crowd, walks away. What has happened? Why did they respond the way they did? And men, I want us to hear this clear as a bell. If you are a follower of Jesus, pay attention. If you're not a follower of Jesus, listen in. But if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, I want us to hear exactly what happened and why. You see, Jesus comes into his hometown and he gets up and the scroll of Isaiah is handed to him and he finds a certain portion and he reads it. Just so you know, the book of Isaiah is the most quoted Old Testament book in the Newer Testament other than the book of Psalms. Why? Here's why. Every Jew during the time of Jesus was studying the book of Isaiah and here's why. Because it's a book about Israel in the midst of their crushing captivity by the Babylonian Empire. So if you're a Jew and you're being crushed by the Romans, you're going to look into Scripture to find hope and peace and deliverance from Scripture, and you're going to be studying the book of Isaiah. And that's why all the Jews of Jesus' day were studying that book to find hope and peace and purpose and deliverance. And so that's why the scroll of Isaiah is handed to Jesus. It was the hot book of the Old Testament for that day for the reasons that I've mentioned. And Jesus picks up the scroll and he reads Isaiah 61. But as my dad often taught me, he would say this, listen for what is not said. Another quote was this by my father. What you don't say speaks as loudly as what you do say. You ever hear those quotes before? So what did Jesus do that enraged the people so much? Let me explain. 
Jesus takes the scroll of Isaiah and he talks about how the Spirit of the Lord is upon him, that God has commissioned him to, to preach good news to the poor. And in verse 19 of Luke chapter 4, it says, the last phrase is, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he stops reading. Let me put for you on the screen the text where Jesus stopped. Jesus took the text and he read it, and it says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, but what doesn't he read? He does not read what's next, and the day of vengeance of our God. He doesn't read that. And he rolls up the scroll and he sits down, and then he begins to speak. And as he speaks, it gets worse. He begins to talk about two of the faith heroes of every Israelite person, Elijah and Elisha, two great prophets that God used incredibly for the Jewish people. Jesus could have picked Moses or Abraham or King David, but he doesn't. He picks these prophets, and when he does, he picks them as examples of great faith, and he references a Gentile woman and a Gentile man who were from the very region that all of the Gentile or many of the Gentile oppressors of the Jews of Nazareth, where they had come from. And Jesus says to this Jewish, highly nationalistic group of people, I want to explain something to you. He says, people, what you need to know is that God, by his grace, took care of a woman Gentile from the region where your oppressors have come from. Not only that, God took care of Naaman, a man who had leprosy. He was a Gentile, but he came looking to God for truth and for healing, and God miraculously healed him through the prophet Elijah. It was incredible. The woman who was the widow was ready to die, and the prophet Elijah went to her, and he said to her, listen, instead of taking that last little cornmeal and making a cake for yourself, make it for me, and if you do, God will provide. Well, she had a belief system that your God only works in your country. And so for the, a Jewish man to be in her country where his God does not rule or reign, it took a huge leap of faith for her. But she did. She made the prophet Elijah a cake, and her barrel never ran dry, and the cruise of oil was replenished by God every day, and she survived the famine. Now, what you don't know, but what you need to know is this. The famine by the Jews was viewed as judgment on the Gentiles, and the leprosy that the Gentile named Naaman had was viewed by Jews as the judgment of God. And yet God healed them both. God provided for the woman, and he healed Naaman of his leprosy. 
And when Jesus was completed, holding up those examples of faith and the grace and the love of God, the people became violent. They became angry. They grabbed him. They dragged him to the, to him to the top of a cliff, and they were going to throw him off. By the way, it's a clear indication of what Jesus' crucifixion looks like at the end of his life. They would have crucified him if they could, but they didn't. And all the venom and all the hatred of those Jews suddenly was turned on Jesus. And they became ravenous wolves and they attacked him with the intent of destroying him. So what has happened? Listen carefully. God confronted me deeply with this story this week. Deeply. Here's why. They hated the Romans. They hated the Gentiles. And that hatred was eventually turned on Jesus. And yet here is Jesus. He's the actual Son of God. He's the love of God made physical, made manifest in their midst. And Jesus stands up to confront them in the midst of their anger and their hatred and their rage. And he's trying to let them know that in him there's a love and a grace that can help you to even love your enemy. Jesus is the only person in antiquity that ever said, love your enemy. Thousands had said, love your neighbor. But suddenly Jesus shows up and he's showing examples of God's love in the Older Testament to the very people that the Jews now hate and despise and want to see God's vengeance sent upon them. And yet Jesus reads the scroll to the point of God's vengeance and he rolls it up and he sits down and never reads the vengeance part. My question to every man that's here because of recent events, because the parallel to me is shocking between Jesus' event here and the events that are happening around us now. I have a question for every man. Do you have venom and hatred and rage towards your enemy? I want to warn you with the love of Christ that that's exactly what Jesus is confronting in Nazareth. Christ stands in their midst and he calls them to a higher level of love. Granted, it's a level of love that humankind cannot achieve on their own. They need Jesus to be there. But what's incredible to me, they're so angered and enraged and vengeful that they actually take Christ, God in the flesh, and they're going to throw him off a cliff. I want to challenge us, us men. Listen carefully. What Jesus is doing, Jesus is confronting those Jewish men in Nazareth, and he confronts you and me. And what Jesus is confronting is this. Jesus separates following him from nationalism. You are a follower of Jesus before you're an American. You are a follower of Jesus before you work where you work. You are a follower of Jesus 
before you are anything else. You're a follower of His. And Christ confronts them with this. And they decide it would be better to kill Him than to listen to Him. The other thing is this. Jesus is teaching us that if you are an oppressed person, you are still accountable for the state of your heart before God. We live in a culture where if you can announce you've been oppressed in some way, then all of a sudden, all bets are off. You can respond how you want. You can be as violent or enraged or belittling as you want. But Jesus says, not for my followers. If you are oppressed, you are still accountable for the anger and the rage and the bitterness that's in your heart. Christ holds us accountable. And I will tell you, as I read this story this week, I was confronted to the depths of my soul. This confronted me. Because as a man, I feel driven to bitterness and to hatred and revenge. But thank God there's a guy named Jesus who would say to the people in Nazareth and he would say to us, enough is enough. It's time to live differently. It's time to follow me. One final thought that I have is going to be taken from Scripture. And it's found in Matthew chapter 24, verses 9 through 14. Matthew chapter 24, verses 9 through 14, and we're going to read it together. And here's what Jesus says to his disciples when he has announced to them that he is leaving. They have a private session with Jesus in Matthew 24. And they ask him this question, Jesus, what will be the signs of the end? Here's what Jesus says will be the signs of the end. Please listen as we read, does it sound familiar to you? Here's what Jesus says to his disciples 2,000 years ago. Here's what he says. Then you, meaning the Christians, then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many because of the increase of wickedness. And this is where God spoke to my heart so deeply as a man because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Can we put the second to last slide back up again, please? Because... Of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow what? Cold. When I look at Jesus in Nazareth and him confronting that group of people in that synagogue, 
And then what I think about what Jesus says about the end of times. First of all, in my mind and in my heart, I see direct parallels between the persecution and nation will rise against nation. If you were to read earlier, he talks about famines and earthquakes and natural disasters. And then he says, you will be handed over to be persecuted. There's been more martyrs in the last 100 years for Jesus than all the prior years combined. He talks about hatred. And he says this, at that time, many will turn from the faith and will betray each other and hate each other. And because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. My thought for my own life and for every man that's here, young or old, is this. Men, will we stand with Jesus? Will we stand with Jesus on this one? For some of us, that's a radical altering of our hearts. We've become filled with rage and vengeance and bitterness. But I believe Christ stands in front of us and he calls us to something greater than that. He calls us to be a group of people who don't hate, but we're a group of people who watch our hearts and we stand with Jesus. And if our hearts begin to grow cold and be filled with hatred, we repent of that because he has warned us that when we see these things happening, watch out and stand with Jesus instead. I know that this isn't an attaboy Father's Day sermon, but it's the most important one that many of us men need to hear. Are we filled with vengeance and hatred? Jesus would stand in front of us and say that as my follower, you are better than that. And through his power and authority, you can live better than that. And so I have a question. Men, will you stand with Jesus? Will you stand with him? I mean that literally. Will you stand with him as we close out our time? All the men in the auditorium. We're going to conclude for those men that are standing, ladies, you'll join us in a moment. For we're going to conclude by singing, On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And if you're like I am, and Christ has spoken to you through these biblical scriptures, and you know that your heart isn't really standing with Jesus, I want to encourage you that as we sing this hymn and as Callie and the worship team leads us in this hymn, that you would close your eyes in God's presence and maybe for the very first time you would address this issue in your life. Have you become vengeful and bitter? I want to encourage you to let the love of Christ heal your heart by the working of the Spirit on this Father's Day. 
on this Father's Day. Callie, would you lead us? Men, if you're comfortable and you've got your eyes closed, if you know that you need Christ to help you, would you just kind of lift your hands up in front of you as a sign of your receptivity to God that he'd do a work in your heart? Callie, lead us. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. will you stand and join us that way the singing will sound a whole lot better his oath is coming in his oath is covenant his blood support me yes Jesus yes Jesus that Callie would lead us in that last stanza one more time. And as she does, men, I want to encourage you to open up your heart fully to Christ. Maybe you've never, ever done that before, but you would recognize in this moment in God's presence that the person of Christ is here. Maybe he's confronted you and you sense that this is something you need to move towards. I just want to encourage you to open up your heart to Christ by faith in this moment and just say, Jesus is a man, I come to you. I don't know everything there is to know about who you are, but in this moment, I surrender my life to you. I surrender my rage and my bitterness and my vengefulness to you. And I ask you that in this moment, dear Jesus, 
that the kind of love that you're calling me to would manifest itself through you in my heart and in my life. Let's sing that last stanza together. Let's sing it with all of our hearts is our profession and our confession of faith to Christ. His oath, his oath is covenant, his blood support me Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. We're going to conclude our service now. If you would like to remain and worship, we invite you to do that. If you have a prayer need in your life that you would like prayer for, the prayer team will be down front to pray with you and to pray for you. And now may the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you. And may he give you peace. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Let's continue to worship. God bless you. changes darkness starts to tremble at the light that you bring and when you walk into the room 
everything starts burning and nothing matters more than just to sit here at your feet and worship you
get enough of your presence. I can't get enough of your presence. No, I can't get enough of your presence. No, I can't get enough of your presence. No, I can't get enough of your presence. Presence is everything. No, I can't get enough of your presence. No, I can't get enough of your presence. No, I can't get enough of your presence. Every part of me, 
Jesus, we love you, and we can't get enough, all this is for you, Jesus.